who write oppressive statutes, to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be your spoil and that you may make the orphans your prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the calamity that will come from far away? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth so as not to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain? For all this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. Ah, Azirah, the rod of my anger, the club in their hands is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the street. But this is not what he intends, nor does he have this in mind, but it is in his heart to to destroy, and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kauno like Karkamesh? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols what I have done to Samaria and her images? The next reading is Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the feltling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And the last Bible reading is from Luke uh, chapter 4, starting at verse uh, 14. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
in, uh, in my final year of high school, uh, back in 1852, I think it was, um, I was uh, part of a seriously good soccer team. We used to call it soccer back then, so I still call it soccer. Football, I know, I know. Um, and in fact, I was captain of the team. I don't know uh, quite how that worked out. They, they asked me, I said yes, and then the next thing I did was break my wrist, actually, in the first game. Uh, but the truth be told, I was a bit of a passenger uh, in that team. I didn't have nearly the skills of uh, most of the others in the team. I certainly didn't have anywhere near the pace uh, running of uh, some of those guys. They were just incredible. Um, it's just that in my particular position, there was no one else to do the job. They needed a sort of meathead like me, and so I, I filled the role. And, and that's the thing about teams, right? You can have passengers. Uh, it's possible to hide. Israel was a team. Israel was the Lord's team, the Lord's nation. They played as a team. They lived as a team. They functioned as a team. They had a law uh, in, in the Bible. It's called the law, actually, uh, the Torah, to govern their national life. Uh, the land, uh, the promised land, the land of uh, Canaan, um, hosted them. God protected them. And at one level, they were a great team. It was a personal religion via a national religion. It was a spiritual religion via a legal religion. But it was a team. And that meant that there was the possibility, and as it turned out, the reality of some passengers on the team, and sometimes even the captain, the king on the field, but functioning poorly. And that's what we've seen in this book of Isaiah. Now, the great gift given to Isaiah the prophet by the living and true God was to see and announce and work out the decision by God to do a radical thing, actually, to disband the team. Isaiah sees in a mirror dimly. He, he traces the outline in dots but he clears the way theologically for a whole new mode of God's dealings with his people. A different way of operating. Not with a team anymore. Uh, his uh, peer, Isaiah's peer, the prophet Jeremiah, called it a new covenant. And Isaiah chapters 7 to 12, uh, what we began looking at last week and continue looking at this week, are really the sort of start of this redefinition completed and enacted by Jesus who read the, the prophecy of Isaiah as we heard in the gospel reading from Luke. Not this particular section, it was later on in Isaiah's prophecy and said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus loved and lived Isaiah's prophecy. And we're going to look at the second half of this kind of radical redefinition uh, under three headings, uh, you'll see them here, anger and an outstretched hand, the destroyer destroyed, and then a remnant will return. All right, first of all, anger and an outstretched hand. Uh, if you were here last week, you'll know that the southern kingdom, the two tribes uh, that were in the south of uh, God's people uh, called Judah, Judah is wedged between a rock and a hard place in a really, really awkward position. The rock is Assyria. Assyria is 
uh, the resurgent, powerful, brutal nation, the, the superpower of its time, beetling its way across the fertile crescent uh, there in the Middle East and on a collision course with Judah's northern neighbours. That's the rock. They've got a superpower bearing down on them. The hard place and, and the immediate threat to Judah is her own sister nation, Israel, the northern ten tribes of God's people, who, who realise that Assyria is going to get them first and therefore are trying to make allies to build a big enough army to resist Assyria. Now, uh, Israel, the, the northern uh, part, is deeply committed to the principle that a friend of my enemy is an enemy of mine. And actually, that's a pretty good principle when you think about it. A friend of my enemy is an enemy of mine. And it looks for all the world like Judah, the southern two tribes, is going to have to choose between Assyria or Israel in the north, her sister nation. Will she side with Assyria? That's a good bet. They're the superpower. But that means that she'll get the wrath of Israel. Will she side with Israel? In which case then when Assyria comes, she'll get the wrath of Assyria. It's a rock and a hard place, you see. Now, of course, if you were here last week, you'll know that Isaiah has a very helpful third option. Remember the Isaiah's third option? Do nothing and trust God. Uh, but do nothing and trust God never seems a very practical sort of option. Uh, actually, spiritual reality rarely seems terribly practical. Uh, try dying on a cross. But that's Isaiah's call. And the first thing Isaiah says in this second portion of his uh, redefinition of the way God deals with his people uh, is to say that Israel's designs against Judah will come to nothing. Don't panic, he says. Don't panic. Uh, it's not going to be that uh, because of Assyrian military excellence. Uh, no, it's going to be because of God's judging excellence. And what we see here is the comfort of God's judgment for the oppressed. It's uh, not that uh, Assyria that Israel is going to have to deal with in the north, it's the Lord. And so in what is now a by now familiar tone, Isaiah announces the judgment of God in the life of Israel. He's going to send her into a kind of social and spiritual chaos as a result of her pride and disinterest in God. And chapter 9 verse 8 um, through to chapter 10 verse 4 is a dark poem of judgment. It has four stanzas. Each stanza ends with the line, it ain't over till it's over. Actually, that's a modern translation. Uh, the Hebrew uh, literally is translated, for all this his anger has not turned away, his hand is stretched out still. Listen to it, for example, in chapter 10, verse 1. Ah! Uh, and ah in the Bible is a really scary thing when a prophet or God says it to you. Uh, literally underneath it is woe. Woe! Ah! You who make iniquitous decrees, who write oppressive statutes to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be your spoil and that you may make orphans your prey. See, what's Israel supposed to do? She's supposed to help widows and help orphans. And instead now she's ripping them off. What will you do on the day of punishment in the calamity that will come from far away? See what Isaiah is saying? What will you do when Assyria comes? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth 
so as not to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. And for all this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. It ain't over till it's over. Now, if you read uh, any of the Old Testament prophets, actually, and certainly as we've seen over the last few weeks in Isaiah, um, you, you read passages of judgment like this. And um, it, it's, it's one of those sort of awkward things in our culture. Our culture uh, uses passages like this to, to make the argument as a criticism of Christianity that, well, God is a kind of hateful, vindictive, judgmental sort of character. And, and it's something that you've got to wrestle with because um, it's there, you can't avoid it, you can't sideline it. Um, actually, for the prophets, it's, it's central, it's crucial. There's lots to say as we do that wrestling, but one of the key things to say is this. The only thing worse than a God who judges is a God who doesn't judge. The only thing worse than a God who judges is a God who doesn't judge. To not judge would make God a moral monster. Callous and indifferent to the misery and suffering that human evil produces. The truth is that we all deeply desire justice. And ultimately that can only mean the judging intervention of the God of justice. However, point two, there is a particular problem raised by this prophecy of Isaiah. For you see, the judgment upon Israel envisaged by Isaiah is not kind of sulfur and fire from heaven, a sort of direct uh, pouring out of God's wrath uh, from his hand. No, God works his judgment through an agent, through by means, and in particular, by means of the violent armies of Assyria. Listen to chapter 10, verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the club in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and to seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. You see what Isaiah is saying? saying, that this, this superpower, this world-crunching kind of nation of Assyria that's coming across the fertile crescent to, to set up an empire, I mean, the great world empire at the time, that's, that's the rod in God's hands, actually. That's the, the, the club in, is God's fury. Um, they're going because he sends them. He commands them. Now, I mean, uh, you weren't, you've never had a superpower about to attack your country, have you? Uh, neither have I, actually. Um, but you don't have to have a very great kind of imagination to know what a terrifying prospect that would be. And therefore, what an astonishing kind of crazy talk this is from Isaiah to say that it's actually God who's sending them. Is this just a classic case of the ends justifying the means, the ends of a just judgment justifying the means of a brutalizing Assyria. And what's so important, what's actually really 
brilliantly insightful by Isaiah here as it, he holds together three crucial things. The first one is, as we've seen, that God is the one who sovereignly works through the warrior nation of Assyria. Uh, Isaiah will have absolutely none of the idea that this is somehow God out of control. That the things have got a bit crazy here. No, no. God is absolutely in control. It is he who commands. It is he who sends. It is he who wields this rod of his anger. And, and, notice at the same time, this is perfectly consistent with the fact that Assyria has not got the faintest clue about the ultimate origin of her mission or her success. Verse 7, um, but this is not what he, meaning Assyria, intends, nor does he have this in mind, uh, but it's in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Uh, Assyria is full of itself, full of her own importance, thinks that it's the great organiser of world affairs. So, so on the one hand, God is the one who is sending and sovereign. Assyria has no idea what's going on and third, even as the ignorant vehicle of the judgment of God, Assyria is herself responsible for her actions and will be culpable for her wickedness. And so verse 12 of chapter 10, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, when he's done all of his judgment through Assyria, he will punish the arrogant boasting of the king of Assyria and his haughty pride. For he says, by the strength of my hand I've done it, and by my wisdom I have understanding. I've removed the boundaries of people and have plundered their treasures. Like a bull I brought down those who sat on thrones. Assyria is full of arrogance. And so the Lord says that the evil of the instrument that he has used will also receive the full attention of his anger. Listen to this beautiful poetry. Shall the axe vaunt itself over the one who wields it, verse 15? Or the saw magnify itself against the one who handles it? As if a rod should raise the one who lifts it up? Or as if a staff should lift the one who is not wood? Therefore, says the sovereign, the Lord of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. Now, do you see the importance of what Isaiah uh, says here? Uh, what the work, the, the intellectual, the theological work that Isaiah is doing? Uh, he's holding together both the sovereign purposes and action of God, working second through people and leaders who do not know that they're vehicles for that work of God who at the same time, third, are entirely and utterly responsible for the things that they do. And Isaiah holds it all together. He states it. He proclaims it. Although he doesn't explain it, actually. Uh, I'm not sure there is an explanation that's fully satisfactory for how these things hold together, at least not one that I've heard, which may just say more about me and my dumbness than anything else. Because the fact that I don't understand it doesn't mean that I don't believe it. 
For you see, we have something better than an explanation. We have a living enactment of this. Jesus Christ interacted in people's lives in a way that was entirely sovereign. He was never rattled. He was never confused. He was never in any doubt. It wasn't that things got out of hand when he was crucified. He was entirely kingly, sovereign, glorious. And at the same time, that never robbed people of the dignity of their responsibility. It's seeing the wisdom and the gentleness and the authority of Jesus that enables us to believe in divine sovereignty and human responsibility at the same time. At the same time. Without allowing either one to dilute or erode the other. Which leads then to the third thing that we see in this passage. You see, because of this judgment of God, there will be a future for God's people. Verse 20, on that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on the one who struck them, that's Assyria, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. The blow that God will strike through Assyria will be severe, but it will not be total, says Isaiah. A small, struggling, feeble bunch of leftovers, a remnant, will return. And that is exactly what happened, actually. That's exactly what happened. Although the northern ten tribes were carried off by Assyria in 721 BC, it was a catastrophe. And then the southern two tribes were likewise deported in 587 BC by the Babylonian Empire. The fact is that in 538 BC, around 50 years later, a remnant did return, actually. Just as Isaiah prophesied. A bedraggled little company of Israelites that repopulated the city of Jerusalem and the land of Canaan, the promised land, and carried with them the promises of God. They had high hopes when they came back, high hopes given to them by the word of the prophet. But it's worth asking the question, you see, what would make this remnant returning different from the last time God rescued them? What would make it any different? You see, time and time and time again, the Lord had delivered Israel from Egypt, from the Canaanites, from Assyria, from Babylon, now from the Persians. And time and time and time again, Israel had continued in the sin which provoked the judgment in the first place. Did you see the problem? To just go one more time round the mulberry bush? Is that what this is? And as Isaiah strains forward under divine inspiration, he sees that this time, this last time, things will be different radically And stunningly different because rather than being offered a new version of the old team, Team Israel, what Isaiah sees is a leader. A leader who will change everything. Chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up 
from the stump of Jesse. Uh, it's interesting, we have a number of stumps around the property here. Uh, we cut down trees and um, they, sometimes they have to go. And especially uh, resilient trees are camphor laurels. They're actually a noxious weed. Uh, but you, you chop down a camphor laurel, you pour petrol in it, you burn it, you just really do your best to kill that sucker. You know what happens? Six months later, there's this little green shoot coming out of the middle of this burnt, black, dead stump. It still goes. It's like the Terminator. And that's what Isaiah says. A shoot will come from the stump. of It looks gone for all money. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes sees or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. Now what we don't have is just another version of Team Israel anymore. What we have is a whole new leader. Now politically, every, uh, every th- uh, three or four years, uh, we get to choose a ruler. Uh, for our nation, a, a Tony or a Kevin or a Julia, a Malcolm or a Bill. And what's more, if uh, what you want is someone uh, to not muck things up too badly, uh, I suppose that, you know, any one of those, uh, much of a muchness, not a bad choice. Of course, we don't seriously look to them or to any government to genuinely make a difference, do we? That would be nutty. We know that all they can do is put band-aids on things. It's all a government ever can do rather than actually change the nature of things. But listen to what this leader will do. The wolf will live with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the kid. And the calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. Now this is not some just really fabulous animal husbandry that we're looking at here. What what Isaiah sees is a fundamental change in the rules. Actually, it's a change of the game altogether. If there's one thing that we know about the animal kingdom, it's that wolves eat lambs, that leopards eat baby goats and that lions eat baby sheep and especially tasty are little humans. That's how it goes, right? We don't look to Malcolm or Bill to change any of that. You'd be nuts to look to them to change that. We want them to do something about the hospitals so you can get a doctor and a bed when a snake has bitten you or a lion has mauled you. But we'd hardly blame them for the snake biting or the lion mauling, because that's what snakes and lions do. But this leader, oh, this spirit-endowed leader, wise and understanding and righteous and faithful and empowered with the power of God, this leader, says Isaiah, will change the rules. This is where God's thing is done now in him. 
not in Team Israel. And the result will be wonderful beyond all imagining. Verse 9, they will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. No more hurt. Think about that. No more destroying. Now notice um, a couple of things um, about this. Uh, First, this is a deeply powerful way of saying that the future that God intends for the world will be both thoroughly and recognisably the same and utterly and completely different and that both of those things are true. You mustn't say one without the other. It's very, very important to get. Uh, We live in a world gripped uh, more or less by the fear of a global devastation. And here at least is part of the Christian response to that fear. God loves his world. Including the earthy, messy bits of his world like lions and asps and adders and bears. And the future that God has for his world is not one without those earthy, messy bits. What Isaiah sees is recognisably our world, and at the same time it is a healed world. Healed with divinely empowered transformation. Not with a band-aid, not with some policy announcement, not with some money thrown at it, in a budget, but healed by a leader full of the spirit of the Lord. A leader who will bring about what God always intended, a good creation under the good hand of his good image bearers. Here depicted, it's so easy to be a leader in this world as God's divine, uh, image bearers, human beings, that it's a little child. You see, you see that? You notice that? It's a little child who leads all these lions and bears and tigers around. That's how things go. But second, notice how in this renewed and transformed order two things go together. The healing of the world and the knowledge of God. In fact, it's it's not just they go together, it's the healing of the world because of the knowledge of God. That's what will matter. Connection to this leader and through him endowed and um, inspired by the Spirit of God to know God truly and deeply. That's where God's thing is done now. And when God is known, really known, known in the depths of our souls, known and loved and obeyed and worshipped and glorified, that's when they will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. Uh, It's a a really interesting way to describe the world, don't you think? Uh, My holy mountain. Um, It actually uh, takes us back to uh, the beginning of Isaiah in chapter 2 when Isaiah says that the mountain of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. That's kind of like saying, um, you know, Ashfield will be established as a high... Ashfield, we were on a little peak here, actually. You sort of, you come up the hill to Ashfield. It's not much of it. Well, it's the same in Jerusalem. The temple is built on a little hill. It's not much of a hill. And the idea of saying that the, 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 the temple mount 
of Jerusalem will become the highest mountain. It's kind of nutty. What it's saying is that um, earth will touch heaven. Earth will touch heaven. At the moment, heaven's up there in a sense, earth's down here, and the two don't kind of work together, right? God's will is done in heaven beautifully and perfectly. It's not really done on earth so much. And Isaiah's vision is that the mountain of the Lord will become the highest so that there won't be any gap anymore. Heaven and earth will become one. And the whole earth will be the dwelling place for God. No remainder, no part left out, no pockets of hurt or destruction or tears or mourning. And so to conclude, the word of the prophet Isaiah to the people of Judah under serious political pressure, military pressure, and his word to us in whatever kind of pressure or difficulty or challenge we face is to hang on. Hang on to this Lord. Hang on to this leader. Hang on to this hope. Do not abandon ship. Don't try and cut loose by yourself. He is faithful and he will do this. And in fact, he started doing it. Because Jesus did come uniquely with the spirit of the Lord resting on him. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit throughout his life. He was raised through the Holy Spirit from death. Uh, Jesus did it in his own way, of course. He didn't just follow Isaiah's script. He, he edited, he, he adapted. And his way is to introduce a pause, a gap, a gap between fulfilment and consummation, between resurrection and return. It's still the case that you'd be a fool to let your wolf get anywhere near your lamb or to let your child play near an asp's nest. This is still a world for the moment in which we need to take care. But the fact is that in resurrection, we see death and destruction and hurt pushed back conclusively. And that means that this vision of Isaiah is a real, live functioning, viable hope. This is how the future of the world actually looks. And when this is your hope, it means two things. It means um, you can kind of cope with any challenge in the present. You have resources sufficient to handle any experience of pain. I think it was uh, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche uh, who said that a person who has a why to live for can endure any what. A person who has a why to live for can endure any what. You have resources in this hope to mean that you don't freak out when life doesn't go the way you hope it will. And at the same time, when this is your hope, you put it like a measuring rod against the grain of your life. Uh, uh, your decisions and your character and your habits 
And, and what you do is you go through a process of adjustment. You become a person more and more yourself who doesn't hurt. You see? Who does justice. Who doesn't judge by what your eyes see or decide by what your ears hear. Those surface superficial judgments that so characterise our culture. No, with righteousness you make your decisions. And forge character. And respond to people. And more and more this hope sinks into your DNA. And you begin to make your sphere of influence, your workplace, your friends, your homes, your neighbourhoods, your apartment blocks. Just a little bit more like God's holy mountain, where they neither hurt nor destroy. May it be so. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as the one who has pushed back hurt and destruction in glorious resurrection. We acknowledge you as this shoot, precious, fragile, and yet ultimately enormously strong. And we pray that the hope that we see in you would so strengthen us and so transform us that we would be your good and faithful servants. And we ask it for your glory. Amen.